0: I'm sure that clears up any questions you had about the offering, so (laughs) just move right on, right? (laughs) Uh, Hey, I'm Chuck, and today we are continuing with our series called One, where we've been looking at what does it mean to be the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed for people who would follow him, because he prayed that, above everything else, we would be one. And today, I want to talk about what unites us all in this oneness that we have through Jesus. And, And in a word, it's this thing called true grace. And so today, I just want to talk to you about what's meant by true grace. So let's start with a word of prayer. God, first of all, I just want to thank you for true grace and the fact that it's available and we can receive it. So God, I just ask that you would take these words in the next couple minutes that we spend together and that you would just communicate the bigger story to all of us of what you're doing in the world and that we would find our place in it. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Wow, well, speaking of movies, how many people have seen Hancock, Will Smith's new movie? A lot of people went to see that. Okay. How many people went to see it on Big Willy weekend? You know, July 4th, you were the first people to check it out, a couple people. What would you think about the movie overall? It was good. People liked it? I got to be honest with you, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. And I'll, all I'm asking is, if you went to see it on Big Willy weekend, why you didn't tell me before I spent my $9 on it? That's all I'm saying. Big fan of Will Smith. Wasn't as much of a fan of the movie. But I'm with you. I I was excited to see it because it had the great premise that you see in every superhero story. But they took it to the extreme. You see, every superhero story, particularly the ones that make the top of my list, all revolve around a superhero with an identity crisis. Am I right? Superhero with an identity crisis, a superhero who either is unaware of their powers, unaware of their place in the bigger story, or they're trying to reconcile how that actually plays out in their life. And so Hancock took it to the extreme. Not only did this hero have an identity crisis, the guy was homeless, he was an alcoholic, I mean, he just took it to the next extreme. And the premise was there for a great superhero story. Because if I think about the ones that I really do like, the top hero stories that kind of make my list, they all have this common premise in in common. Um, The first one on my list is The First Matrix. Anybody with me on that? The, The Matrix, the first movie, one of the best movies ever made. And you've got Neo, right? And Neo has an identity crisis. Neo doesn't even know. He had to wake up to the reality of the world around him. And, you know, Neo has this identity crisis in The Matrix the other ones that make my list, all three of the Lord of the Rings trilogies. Anybody down with that? Man, love the book, love the movies. Just, just man, I can watch those any day of the week. And the thing about the Lord of the Rings is all, all of the players in the fellowship have identity crises, right? You've got Frodo. Frodo is the hobbit, the halfling, as it's called, who clearly sees himself as insignificant. But we wind out, we wind up seeing that he has this huge role to play in the story of the ring. And you've got Aragorn, the, the character that was played by Vigo Mortensen, who's this reluctant warrior, who then we, f- turn out, we find out learns, learns that he is the king, he's going to be the chosen king to lead mankind in this new era. So again, that premise is there of a hero with an identity crisis. My wife and I rented Glory, Glory with Denzel Washington and Matthew Broderick, came out like 1989, I think. Great movie. Just a great, great movie, a true hero story of the 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Regiment in the Civil War. They were the first African-American regiment to see action in the Civil War. And again, Denzel's character, Denzel plays Private Trip. And Private Trip has an identity crisis because he's volunteered to fight for his freedom in the Union Army, but he was previously slave. And even in the army, he's facing discrimination, and so Private Trip has this identity crisis in the midst of what's going on in the movie Glory. And the thing that I love about these stories is they all have this turning point moment. There's this turning point moment where the hero finds out their role in the bigger story, and it changes everything. You know, if you go back to The Matrix, you know, Morpheus, who has the coolest glasses I think I'll ever see on the screen, Coolest glasses ever. You see Morpheus having these conversations with with Neo, and eventually Neo realizing that he is the one, right? Realizing that he's the one. And then there's moments in Lord of the Rings. One of the ones that gets me is in Return of the King, the last movie, where Aragorn is meeting with the elf king, and the elf king pulls out that sword, and he says, you are the king. You are the king. And this turning point moment where he sees his place in the bigger story, and everything changes, And in glory, the same thing. You see Denzel's character kind of reconcile with his own demons and come to the place of understanding that this regiment will make history. This regiment will live in glory, and they will actually lead the way. And you see the regiment walking and marching through as they're about to storm the fort in the last scene of the movie. So again, there's this hero with an identity crisis, but all of these stories have this turning point moment where the hero finds out their place in the bigger story. And every time I watch these movies, I don't care how many times I've seen it before, j- my allergies kick in and I just get water in my eyes. And <laughs> I admit it, I cry. There's something about that theme that strikes me very deeply. And I don't think I'm alone on that. I think others of us feel that way. And I want to say that I think the reason that's the case is because this desire to find our place in the bigger story, this desire to find out our role in the bigger story of pl- that's playing out around us, is a God-given desire God has written that on our hearts he's written that on our hearts but let's just be honest and say that sometimes it's very hard to find our place in the bigger story you know some people are here for the first time you're open to the fact that maybe the God of the Bible is real maybe this story that's playing out in the world actually is captured in the Bible and there is a God that wants relationship with you but you're wrestling through what that means for your life Or others of us, maybe we've made the choice, and we recognize that Jesus is, in fact, God came to earth, and he did some things for us we couldn't do for ourselves, and we've been following that path. But, you know, maybe some stuff has just happened in our lives recently that just didn't work out like we thought it would. And we find ourselves stuck again and trying to find our place in the story. And, you know, I think about my life, and one of the, the seasons of my life that just is epitomized by me stuck and trying to find my place in the story is my teenage years, and particularly in high school. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I would not repeat high school again to save my life. <laughs> to save my life. I mean, high school is just awkward. You're trying to find your identity. You, you think you have to have the right friends. You have to dress the right way. You have to date the right person. I mean, high school is just this thing of, wrapped up in this whole idea of, man, I don't know my place in this story of my life, and I'm trying to figure that out. That's what high school was like for me and also high school was the place where I started to wrestle with my place in God's bigger story as well I grew up in a church I grew up understanding the Bible and and knowing the stories of the Bible and I think it was in my teenage years where I began to engage the Bible for myself and I begin to say alright I understand this stuff and I believe some of this stuff but what is the bigger story that's playing out in the Bible and as I begin to read it for myself I begin to find my place in God's story I am beginning to find my place in God's story. And what I want to do today is I want to share some words with you that come from a letter that was written to Christ followers thousands of years ago who, like us, were struggling to find their place in the bigger story. And what I'm going to do is read some excerpts from a letter that's captured as the book of First Peter in the Bible. And First Peter is a letter that was written to Christ followers in modern-day Turkey. But at the time it was written, these, these Christ followers were under oppression from Rome and they were scattered and it it would take them to places where they didn't know anybody and they found themselves in new environments and they had made this decision they had come and had a real interaction with this Jesus guy but they found themselves lost in the story and Peter is writing these words to encourage them and I think his words can also encourage us and I want to begin at the end of the story because at the end of the story at the end of the letter Peter says something that I think really summarizes for us the way to find our place in the story in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, Peter says this as he's wrapping up the letter, he says, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. What Peter is saying is, I am encouraging you to see that your place in the story is connected to your understanding, and then you're receiving and standing fast in this thing called true grace. And so what I want to explore today is the bigger story that spells out for us just what exactly is true grace. And to start, we've got to begin at the beginning. We've got to start with the beginning of the story. Um, If you've got a Bible or if you've looked through a Bible or flipped through a Bible, you've probably noticed that the Bible kind of breaks out into two parts. The first part we call the Old Testament, and the second part we call the New Testament. Well, that word testament is actually also translated the word covenant. And a covenant was a binding agreement. It was a binding agreement between two parties, and it was something that was very, very common in ancient times. And so the Bible breaks out into these old covenant and new covenant sections that really tell the bigger story of what God's doing in the world. So you can think about it as a two-act play. And so I want to start with Act 1. I want to start with Act 1. And Act 1, if you want to give Act 1 a headline or a summary point, the summary for act one is that Israel is chosen the nation of Israel is chosen you see there were two kinds of covenants back then two kinds of binding agreements in ancient times one was called a parity covenant a parity covenant you can think about that as it was a binding agreement between two equal parties so for instance maybe there were landowners, or maybe there were nations and maybe one nation had this great water source And they had a river and streams, and they were able to really, really fund water, and that was just something that they had as an asset in their property. And maybe over here, these people had great meadows and great fields that were great for grazing cattle. Or if it was nations, maybe there was one nation who had a lot of foot soldiers. And then there was another nation who had a lot of horses and archers. And so they would come together and say, hey, listen, if we can come together and make a parity covenant, we will be better together, together than we are apart. And so they would come together and it was like a contract. They would say, "Hey, if you let me use your water, I'll let you feed your cattle on my meadows, or if you let me have access to your foot soldiers if I'm ever attacked, then I will make sure that if you're ever attacked, my horses and my archers come to protect you." It was a parity covenant, a covenant between two equal parties. But there was also a second kind of covenant that existed in those times. And it was called a suzerainty covenant. A suzerainty Covenant. It's not important that you remember the word suzerainty, but I want you to know what kind of covenant this was. Because a suzerainty covenant was a binding agreement between a stronger party with a weaker party. A binding agreement where a stronger nation would say to a weaker nation, maybe for strategic interest or for some other reason, I am going to enter into a binding agreement with you. And in this agreement, I am offering my protection. I'm offering my resources, even though there's not much you bring to the table. And all I ask in return is that you follow the guidelines of this binding agreement between the two of us. A suzerainty covenant, a covenant between a stronger party with a weaker party. In Act 1, where Israel is chosen, is all about God establishing a suzerainty covenant with the nation of Israel where God is clearly the stronger party and he chooses this insignificant small nation called Israel and he chooses to set his affections on them in this suzerainty covenant let's take a look at that you see it in Exodus 19 5 summarized where God says to the nation now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant this suzerainty covenant then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God is saying here is he's establishing this suzerainty covenant. He's saying, I am choosing you, Israel, to set my affections upon. I am choosing to call you out out of all the nations in the world and make you my treasured possession. I am choosing to give myself to you. I'm choosing to give my love to you, my support to you, my resource to you. He's also giving them his law. He's giving them the way that they should live their lives. He's choosing to give this to the nation of Israel. He's saying to them, "I have chosen you for special relationship with me." That's what he's saying to the nation of Israel. And he says you will also be a kingdom of priests. And it was understood back then that priests were the go-betweens between man and God. Priest were God's representatives on the earth and that was true across a variety of religions in ancient times so God is also saying Israel not only will you be chosen for special relationship with me but through you and through my interactions and my dealings with you I'm going to represent myself to the rest of the world a suzerainty covenant and that's what the Old Testament the old covenant act one of the story is all about it's about Israel being chosen but here's the other thing you should know about the first act of the story. If there's a subplot in, the act, in Act 1, the subplot is that Israel never measured up. Israel never measured up. And so what you continue to see time and time again in that Old Covenant, the story of the Old Testament, is Israel failing to keep the covenant that God has given them. Somebody said there were over 400 laws that were included in the law that God gave to the nation of Israel. So it's probably no surprise that they were not able to measure up. I mean, think about us. We wouldn't have done any different if God came and made that same covenant agreement with us. We wouldn't have done any different. Israel never measured up. But another thing you should know about Act 1 is God never gave up on Israel. God never gave up on Israel. He continued to set his affections on them. Clearly there were consequences when they chose against God, but God over and over and over again continued to redeem Israel. He continued to rescue Israel. He continued to set his affections on this on this nation. Because God entered into a binding agreement that he never ever was going to break with Israel. So Israel was chosen. That's act 1 of the story. So Life is pretty good if you're an Israelite, right? Life is pretty good if you're an Israelite. God, the creator of the world, entered into a special relationship with your people and has chosen to set his affections on you. Life's pretty good if you're an Israelite. My question is, what about the rest of us-ites? <laughs> We're Cincinnatiites living in the United States of Americanites, whatever you want to call it. What about the rest of usites? Because again, like all the stories of those heroes that we talked about, we're stuck trying to find our place in the story. Well, the good news is it's only act one. It's only act one. And like every great story, this one too has a turning point. This one has a turning point. And the turning point is the beginning of the new Testament, the New Covenant. And the New Covenant, the New Testament begins with four authorized biographies about a man named Jesus Christ. And friends, what I want you to know today is that Jesus is the turning point in this story. He's the turning point in the story because the Bible tells us that Jesus was fully God, he was divine, and he was fully man. He was God in human form. And one of the things that you should know is that Jesus always measured up. Jesus lived a perfect life. The Bible says that he didn't do anything, didn't make any choice that was against God's original design or original will. So Jesus measured up in a way that we and the nation of Israel never could. He lived a perfect life. But the other thing that Jesus did is he died a painful death he died a painful death and something happened spiritually there was a spiritual transaction when Jesus died that we benefit from see what you need to know is that first covenant and every covenant in, modern, in in the ancient times was always established through a sacrifice there was always the sacrifice of some animal or some goat or some lamb or something to recognize and mark the fact that this was a covenant this was a binding agreement so blood had to be shed as a way to say hey this is something that's serious And in fact, this sacrificial system is also part of that first covenant that God created with Israel. But what the Bible tells us about Jesus is that Jesus actually was the final sacrifice. He was the final sacrifice. He fulfilled the covenant in the sense that he didn't break any of the laws, but he also took the penalty for all of the choices that you and I make and will make and have made against God. And so the turning point in this story is when we start to understand that our bigger picture in the story is the fact that we are recipients of true grace. See, if the headline for Act One of the story is that Israel is chosen, well, the good news is that Act Two, the headline, is that we are chosen. We are chosen. And now, I know this is a lot of backstory. I used a lot of words we don't always use around here, like covenant and suzerainty. But here's the thing. You've got to understand the backstory. You've got to understand the bigger picture if you're going to be able to step into your role in the story. And that's where I want to pick up again on Peter's encouraging words to you and to I. Because these words now will have meaning to you. Because in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter plays on this covenant idea when he says these words. He says, but you... You and I now are chosen people. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What Peter is talking about here is that true grace is simply this. It's that we are chosen. True grace is that we get in on the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, but actually we get a better version of the covenant because we know we can't measure up. God knows we don't and won't measure up, but the great thing is we don't have to measure up. We simply receive what God has done through his son Jesus Christ. We are chosen. I want to take a look at these words that Peter chooses because he chooses these words so we find our place in the bigger story. Let's go back to Exodus 19.5, and let's compare the words that Peter's using. In Exodus 19.5, God says to the nation of Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And notice how Peter picks up on those same words. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.9 again. And he says, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Peter is saying, hey, listen, in the same way that God shows Israel in the first covenant, God has chosen to establish a binding agreement with you and I where we get to receive his grace. We get to receive his love. We get to receive a relationship with him in the same way that he chose and set his affections on the nation of Israel. Notice the words that Peter uses. Peter uses the word royal. He uses the word royal. He says that we are chosen. He says that we are holy, and that word holy, we can think about that as a person who's perfect. The word holy means a person who's set apart. Set apart for the interest of God. And Peter uses those words when he's talking about you and I. What he's saying is we now have been chosen to have a distinct relationship with God. We have been chosen to have direct access to God simply by receiving what he's done in Jesus for us. We get in Jesus what we could never get for ourselves because we could never measure up. We can never keep our end of the covenant, but thankfully, because Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died a painful death, and the Bible also records he rose again in three days. He rose with power. Because of those things, we now get to receive this true grace that in the first act was only set aside for the nation of Israel. And friends, that's the good news. You hear people talk about the gospel, that's that's what the gospel means, it means good news, and the good news is that we are chosen, that we are recipients of the true grace of God. And so like every hero in the stories that we talked about, like Neo in The Matrix, like Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, like Denzel Washington's character in Glory, what is our response? Well our response is simply to embrace our calling. Just embrace the fact that we're chosen. This isn't something that we work our way to. This isn't something that we have to jump through hoops for. All we simply do is embrace the calling we have as being people who are chosen by God. And that's good news. That's what the gospel is. That's why it's good news. You know, Peter talks about this again in the second half of that verse when he says this. What does it look like to embrace your calling? Peter says after he tells us that we are royal, that we are holy, that we are a people chosen for God, he says, and you embrace your calling that you may declare the praises of him who called you. There's that word calling again. Who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what Peter is saying is when you receive grace, it is a natural response to reflect grace. It's a natural response. As we receive more of God... And we simply receive more of God by asking for more of God. It's, it's just as simple as that. But as we receive it, we naturally reflect it. You know, I was talking with some friends yesterday, and we were saying, man, this thing of true grace, sometimes when you think about it in terms that are just much more realistic for us and practical for our day and time, it all comes together. And so I was reminded in that conversation of the fact that in a week and a half, I'm going to become a father to a son. And my son is already chosen to be my son. When he was conceived in the womb, he was chosen. He didn't have to do anything to be chosen to be my son. He didn't have to sign some papers when he's born. He doesn't have to pass a test when he's born. Simply because he came from me, he is my son. Simply because he's mine. He's already been chosen. And the thing I love about it, the best picture you can get of what it looks like to receive this true grace from God, I'm going to get the best picture of that in a week and a half when that baby is born and all he can do is receive. All he can do is receive what his mother and I have for him, the love that we have for him, the provision that we will provide for him, the care that we will give him. All he can do is simply receive it. And every time he cries, it's him asking for what we can give him. That's all it is. That's all it is. And that's the relationship that we have with God. That's why Peter said this thing of true grace is so amazing because you don't have to work for it, but simply receive it. You simply receive it. And as you receive it, It's natural that you reflect it. It's natural that you reflect it. My brother has twin boys. And I was thinking about this as an example of what it means to reflect the grace that you receive. You know, it's funny to watch kids as they grow up. And I remember when the boys were young, and they were just learning how to walk. You know, my brother has a particular gait. My brother's taller than I, and he kind of walks with a little bit of hunch, and his hand kind of behind his back. He kind of walks like this sometimes. And, you know, it was amazing to watch these little boys who would obviously watch their father, and you would see these little boys doing this. You <laughs> you see him doing it. And you know, nobody ever taught them that, but they were simply reflecting what they had received. They were simply reflecting what they received. And friends, that's what it means to reflect the grace of God. See, when we receive the grace of God, we simply walk like our Father. We reflect what our Father would do. So we, we, we reflect love because God loves us. We reflect grace because God gives us grace. We reflect the ability to forgive people who harmed us because God, through Jesus, has forgiven us of all of the things we've done that have chosen against Him. We simply walk like our Father. We simply walk like our Father, and when we reflect grace... What Peter is saying is we're declaring the praises of him. We're declaring the greatness of a God who made this suzerainty covenant, this binding agreement with us, where we don't have to do anything other than simply ask and receive it. And as we receive it, we'll naturally reflect it. So like Peter, I say this to you briefly today so that you would be encouraged and that you will understand that to find your bigger place in the story, it's simply about this thing called true grace. And what I want to say to you today is maybe you're here and you've never, you've never received that. You can only reflect what you've received. Maybe you've never received the fact that Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. Maybe you've never said, man, I believe that, and I know I need that, and I want to follow in the way of my Father as a way of receiving the grace he has for me. If you have never had a moment where you said, I received that, Today could be that moment for you. If that's where you are today, I want you to know, at the end of the service, just simply stay in your seat, and our prayer team would love to come and pray with you and kind of just seal this moment where you're receiving the grace of God. And you know, for many of us, we've made that choice, and we are following after Jesus. But perhaps there's been something that's happened in your life. Perhaps a plan didn't go the way you thought it would. Perhaps you lost a loved one. Perhaps something happened in your life, and now you're at a point of saying, you know what? I'm struggling to find my place in the story Well, I want you to know the grace is something that we can continually receive from God and if that's you also stay in your seat people would love to pray with you you know we sang a song in the beginning of the service um, called dwell and I love the words of that song because if you think about the words of that song it's us being in the position of kids asking our father for things recognizing that we don't have to bring anything to the table, but we're simply asking God, hey, come and be with us. Come and wipe the tears from our eyes. Come and sustain us. It's us saying, God, I recognize that through Jesus, I have in you what I could never do for myself. And I want to be in a position to receive that. And so I'm going to ask that we stand. And as a declaration of us saying, God, I want to receive your true grace, we're going to sing that song together.